0: Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr.
1: Today we're joined by Dr. Precious Chazici-Dudi, who co-authored the book Russia Today and Conspiracy Theory with Dr. Ilya Yablakov. On this episode, we discuss how Russia Today has covered the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And we also take a look at the recent banning of the channel in the eu uk And America. Without further ado, let's get going.
0: The opinions expressed by guests on secrets and spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast.
1: Welcome back to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me on again.
1: Pleasure. Now, when we spoke in November, uh, we discussed your excellent book, Russia Today and Conspiracy Theories. So I suppose my first question today is, what was your reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine?
2: I think, like most other people, I was horrified. Um, Also a bit disbelieving, to be honest, because we'd had quite a lot of intelligence beforehand that this was planned. And I think I, like others, just didn't want to believe it was really going to happen. And if we're honest about it, I think a lot of professional analysts were actually taken quite by surprise. You know, there were a few... Excellent military analysts who did say, look, this troop movement is quite clear what's going to happen. But they were certainly in in the minority. And I think a lot of people thought, look, the strategic rationale behind this doesn't make sense. What can be gained from a full scale invasion that can't be gained from the threat of it? And I think we've seen just how rapidly the situation on the ground has developed um, far beyond, I think, what could reasonably have been anticipated, you know, just a few weeks ago.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of sort of debate in the build up to the invasion because it was presented as a sort of training exercise. And it has been going on since, I think, December. So it's been going on for some time and there'd been a sort of debate of will they, won't they? So I suppose one of the things I was to chat to you today about with regards to all this is um, before we sort of dive into sort of examples, um, can you give us a sort of brief overview of what Russia Today is and other Russian media outlets that have sort of become known to spread conspiracy theories and general falsehoods?
2: Yeah, well, Russia Today is Russia's state-funded international broadcaster and it basically produces Web content and broadcast programs for various different media markets. It has English language outputs for the US and the UK. Um, It had a German language wing and a a French language wing. That that German wing basically has had to move um, because Germany wasn't too keen about have you know about hosting it. And you know it's been in operation for really quite a long time now but certainly in the past five or six years at least we've seen really focused attention on what RT is doing and the kind of the potentially negative effects that it's broadcasting can have on the political process and this has come in parallel with I think a much greater awareness of problems to do with um, manipulated media coverage Fake news, the spread of conspiracy theories, and RT itself, its content really sits in that particular part of the media ecosystem, I suppose. It's got a terrible reputation for spreading conspiracy theories, and... It has had an obsession with conspiracy theories pretty much since the start of the network, and you know, not necessarily by creating them, but plugging into a very vibrant conspiracy culture and using that as one of its key selling points, I suppose, because these are things that capture the imagination. They work perfectly for RT's own um self-branded critical thinkers stance. You know, it really makes people believe that they're seeing another side of a story. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's got this this terrible reputation, deserved reputation, for engaging with conspiracy theories. But of course with it being a state funded broadcaster, it's not just any old conspiracy theories that tend to be particularly popular. It's ones that do serve Kremlin interests. And I guess as we talk a little bit more about how this conflict between Russia and Ukraine has developed, we can see pretty clearly the kind of role that an international broadcaster like RT plays at these critical moments of key um, national interest. What we'll also talk about is just how we can also see Um, How the Russia-Ukraine conflict has galvanised political will to deal with Russia's broadcasting operations. So there's been years of recurrent questions about the status of Russian international broadcasting every time a, a new major crisis involving Russia occurs. Now we've seen the EU come right out and ban the network across its territory, and that's been part of a cascade effect, which is going to demand a wholesale reimagining of Russia's global information operations going forward.
1: Yeah, and uh, I highly recommend if listeners haven't heard our episode that we recorded in December, do check that out because uh, you go into great detail about some of those historical moments um, where Russia today has been known to spread conspiracy theories and sort of skew coverage of things, everything from the Skripal poisoning to. Litvinenko and uh, the deep state and much more. In the run up to the invasion of Ukraine, I noticed that the Russian media and a few online figures were making fun of the US government's multiple statements that they believed that a Russian invasion was imminent. Even the day before the invasion, there seemed to be a lot of online discussion playing down these concerns. Then on Thursday, the 24th of February, Russian forces started their invasion. So can you talk to us a bit about sort of what you've observed from Russia Today's coverage of sort of from both the build-up and the invasion of Ukraine? How are they kind of framing all this to their audience?
2: So during the build-up, there was a lot of ridicule of the idea that an attack was imminent. And this was fitted into kind of a cookie-cutter representation, I would say, of what the Western media and political elite love to do to Russia because of their uh, internalised, you know, Russophobia. There was this really clear narrative that this is just Russophobic warmongering. And RT had so many um, stories posted online that basically ridiculed these claims um, that an invasion was imminent or said, oh, you know, you said this three days ago, but look, there's been no invasion. And basically, tried to undermine um, that intelligence about um, a forthcoming military intervention. And this is actually, like I say, a cookie cutter response in a way because RT uses charges of Russophobia very frequently. It pays an awful lot of attention to what the Western media is doing. You know, it deliberately sets itself up in opposition to Western mainstream media, but is genuinely obsessed with it. I've done quite extensive analysis in the past of how rt structures its news broadcasts and one of the very recurrent themes is actually discussion of the western mainstream media so if a key you know if a critical event in the news happens there's often discussion not just of the event but of how western media is covering that event that was how they broke the Skripal poisonings for example not particularly focusing on the fact that the poisonings had occurred but focusing on a supposed wave of russophobia in the western media as a result of their assumptions about the Skripal poisonings so it's a very interesting kind of framing that they frequently use and we saw this in the build-up to the invasion as well just ridiculing of the idea that an invasion was going to happen And again, that's another really key tactic RT has used over time, is using humour to counter critique of Russia without substantively engaging with it. So it looks like you're engaging with criticism of Russia. You know, you're covering those stories about what Russia's being accused of, but you're not actually delving into any detail about them or giving any real arguments as to why they're not valid. You're simply dismissing them humorously.
1: Yeah. there's also a kind of recurrent theme about Nazis being in power in Ukraine. I've seen that kind of come up a few times, and that was a talking point back in, I think, 2014 with the annexation of Crimea. Have have you got any thoughts on why they always seem to pick that?
2: Um, There's a couple of reasons, really. Um, The first is that, in general, one of the things that works very well in any sort of information operation is to take a tiny nugget of truth, and then to build up a story that doesn't necessarily follow. And what it means is that things look a lot more plausible than they really are, or they look to be more plausible than what reality actually is. Yeah. The neo-Nazi story has a long lead-in, I suppose. It's been this very prominent refrain that the Kremlin has used to undermine the Ukrainian leadership. Um, and it's partly because it's an extremely emotive refrain. It's key to a Russian national identity to pin back to the, the Soviet purchase of world freedom from the Nazis with Soviet soldiers' blood. And that's been used as a, a key feature of the Soviet nation building and then Russian nation building. So this kind of opposition to Nazism is a really important part of contemporary Russian national identity, and a very important idea of how Russia fits into the wider world and what it's done for the wider world. So that's part of it. The other part is that Ukraine does have a bit of an issue with the far right. Now, we know that many states in Europe do have issues with the far right at the moment, um, you know, rising tides of populism and whatnot. But in Ukraine, there have been some kind of high profile problems with neo-nazi groups that i think perhaps has been a bit too much institutional tolerance of so the azov regiment has been folded into ukraine's former military that itself has kind of neo-nazi links so it makes it much more plausible to say look there's a problem with neo-nazis in ukrainian institutions but then that's been kind of snowballed into the charge that this is basically a neo-Nazi regime at the heart of Europe, which is something that's been alleged pretty much outright on Russian domestic TV, for example. And you can use an example like the Azov Regiment to, you know, supposedly provide evidence of this. But obviously what's being charged is way above and beyond that specific example.
1: Yeah. How are they representing the conflict now? You know, because we've got varying death tolls, and and uh, obviously the progress seems to be slower from what we've seen uh, in in sort of the Western media's representation of what's going on.
2: It's quite interesting looking at how Russian media is trying to deal with events as they unfold. So there are some differences between Russian domestic media, state media, and. Russia's international broadcasters, as there always are, because, you know, looking at which audiences they're based at, they would have access to different levels and different types of information. Now, at home, um, from the start, the domestic media has completely parroted the Kremlin's line. So once the invasion was underway, or special operation, as the Kremlin and Russian domestic state media would have you believe, that's what the coverage focused on. You know, it was very much portrayed as a limited special operation focused on Donbass to bring liberty to the people of Donbass who were subject to genocide and whose recognised national leaderships had requested Russian intervention. This, again, it's like cookie cutter stuff because we look at the um, justification for Russia getting involved in Syria. And that was that, well, you know, the the, the rulers of Syria requested our assistance. And it's not necessarily delved into as to how legitimate those requests actually are. Obviously, in Donbass, these were essentially Russian-installed separatists, and they requested Russia's assistance. You know, basically, Russia requested Russia's assistance. Mm. You know, and and that's obviously not delved into at all, but it's, it's used as a kind of moral and legal justification for why Russia would be getting involved in this very supposedly delimited operation. And as more information has filtered through and as more critical takes have filtered through into the Russian domestic media space, there's been various attempts to kind of respond to this. So some of these have looked at the reports of civilian casualties and said, no, they're all fakes or no, they're provocations. They were committed by the Ukrainian side and they're simply blaming us. We've then at times had the idea that, you know, if your country's at war, you've got to support your country even if it does something wrong. Even though apparently this isn't a war, it's just a special operation. So all the lines are getting very muddled. And it's essentially a, a responsive strategy to just keep justifying what the Kremlin's doing. And as much as people find out about what the Kremlin's doing. Yeah. Um, at the same time you've got these pretty desperate attempts to cut down the amount of information that the Russian public have. So people are getting information directly from um, friends and family in Ukraine, for example. You know, some of the truth is filtering through. Russia's oppositional media had been pretty much unprecedentedly critical about this invasion, calling it an invasion, talking about uh, war crimes committed um, in Putin's name. And we have seen a really rapid Institutional response to that with Russia's media regulator, basically forcing outlets to take down anything that doesn't tow the Kremlin's line, blocking access to particular websites, restricting access to social media, and now closing down uh, one of the biggest independent news sources that has been in operation for decades now, Echo of Moscow, has you know it's basically been liquidated as a result of the critical coverage that it was continuing to provide yeah um if you look at the international coverage of the events in ukraine again they have they've really kind of parroted the kremlin's line in a much closer way than you normally see on russia's international media so what rt would do normally is provide something that covers contemporary events in line with the Kremlin's preferences, but isn't necessarily clearly parroting the Kremlin's lines. What we consistently see with RT is that when something happens that's crucial to Russia's national interest, so for example military interventions as in Georgia, um, Crimea, the Skripal poisonings and now this, that's when that coverage gets really extremely close to the Kremlin lines and very, very unreliable as well. So we had RT using the language of special operation, often in inverted commas, uh, and often it was made clear that this was a quote from Russia's ruling elite. So that's almost a way to give, not exactly plausible deniability, but to kind of skirt around journalistic standards because you're merely reporting what somebody has actually said rather than necessarily endorsing it. I mean, that's the theory of presenting it in that way, I think. But nonetheless, that the coverage has just been really horrific. I mean, I noticed at one point that the maps that they were putting up of Ukraine and of which parts of Ukraine were under Russian control, they had marked off the People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, but they had marked off as the republics the whole regions of Donetsk and Luhansk. Now, the actual so-called People's Republics make up maybe a third of that territory. Um, and the wider Donetsk region, the wider Luhansk region is a relatively recent acquisition to Russia's side. And it, it was not made clear in these maps at all. It made it seem like that was already a done deal. So there are lots of ways that this coverage has just been manipulated to basically tow the Kremlin line, I think, in a much stronger way than RT was doing with other types of stories up until quite recently.
1: And do RT or any of the Russian media outlets have any kind of like um, journalists or, should we say, propagandists embedded with Russian troops at the moment?
2: Well, RT used for its coverage um, lots of journalists reporting from specifically the the Donetsk and Luhansk regions, so within those um, self-declared people's republics. And actually, this was one of the ways in which it mirrored domestic coverage, because well after everybody else was admitting that this was a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. They were really focusing their coverage on those particular geographic regions and trying to ignore what was going on further afield. So they would send their journalists to those regions to kind of report on the ground. They would also bulk out their coverage with Um, like documentaries that they'd been filming over the past eight years or so within those regions that very much focused on the perspectives of um, pro-Russian families or pro-separatist families. And so, you know, you're getting kind of wall-to-wall coverage that absolutely mirrored the kind of things that the Kremlin wanted talking about. Mm. One of the interesting things about how RT's been covering this whole conflict, really, is just how changeable the picture has had to be so you know right up until it happened they were ridiculing the idea it could happen then the party line became okay a special intervention a special operation sorry um has been announced and that's going ahead um now there's got to be some sort of a response to these charges of civilian casualties and that is being covered but so are the kind of counter-arguments that, oh, you know, these are actually just provocations. Now, what is very interesting and what has happened previously in similar crises like this is that a lot of RT staff have suddenly had a bit of a rude awakening. So we have had mass um, resignations from RT and many of its affiliates. Some of the kind of web staff have resigned people from the rookie video service again have resigned some high profile presenters as well so alex Salmond has suspended his involvement for the time being so as one of the key presenters on rt france and it's almost like you know these people were just as taken by surprise by how quickly things escalated as many others were and i think it's really forced them to reassess their involvement with the network Many of these were people who've said all along, look, I didn't have any interference with my editorial line. But then once something like this happens, this is exactly when that kind of interference comes in. You know, you refer to it as a special operation. You don't refer to it as an invasion. I've seen very few examples of anything other than that standard Um, phraseology being used. I saw one web article where invasion appeared to have slipped through, but that was right at the beginning before some of the um, resignations. So I wonder if that was by a disgruntled employee who then um, you know, left the network, perhaps. So I I think it's caused a really massive stir and there's been a humongous backlash, not just within the network, obviously, but in a wider kind of political and regulatory sense. I guess we'll talk about that shortly. To me, it looks like this is going to be a pretty... It's going to have pretty long-lasting implications for the way that Russia's information operations work in Europe and in the wider West. You know, that political galvanisation has been followed by a corporate response too, and we've now seen RT effectively taken off the air in the US and the UK, quite apart from the EU's official ban, and it's been announced that US production is being wrapped up completely.
1: Thank you for that. So obviously we've mentioned it before there's been discussion about stopping Russia today and in the EU they've actually taken steps over the weekend to actually now stop the broadcasting of Russia today. In the UK I believe there's still a debate kind of going on about what the future of Russia today will be. What are your thoughts on all of that?
2: I think it's a really difficult one to decide on because in general my my opinion all along has been you know we have an independent regulator in the uk it's got a job to do and it should be left alone to do that job now we did see um once the conflict got underway various interventions from politicians um suggesting that rt should be banned brought off the air or at the very least investigated and i can understand why they would be making statements like that i don't think there's a question that rt needs to be closely monitored and as it happens Ofcom, the British regulator, has just come out and launched 12 new investigations into RT's content because so much of it was looking um, potentially problematic. Now, I'm fairly certain Ofcom was monitoring RT anyway, under the circumstances. I don't think they needed the prompt from those politicians. And to me, there is that kind of danger that if it looks like there's political interference, it sort of undermines the point of having an independent regulator and it opens us up to charges of whataboutism, especially when we know that the Russian regulator is just so heavily influenced by the Russian regime and essentially does it, its bidding. We want to be seen to be above that. yeah. So that's why I've always been really cautious about advocating any sort of special measures for RT you know I think we have a regulatory system that by and large works pretty well and we need to kind of let it do its thing that being said it is highly significant that the EU has gone ahead and banned RT and I think it is having ramifications in a number of ways not least because of how this impacts the financial model of the network you know These are networks that do actually rely on um, corporate advertisements for some of their revenue. Obviously, they have a big state budget as well, but they kind of attempt to insinuate themselves into broader media markets in, in that way. So having that outright ban, I think, messes with the general operational strategy of the network. And it also sends a really, really, really strong signal. In a practical sense, what it's done is it has meant that it's much more difficult for people to accidentally stumble across RT, and I, I think that's certainly significant. I think as we look ahead over the next kind of coming days, we're going to see the beginning of some really important trends, I think. So, you know, we've already seen that YouTube, first it demonetized RT's content, now it's um basically blocked Band RT from the platform. Again, YouTube was probably one of the most important outlets for RT. And one of the things RT used to boast about was being the most watched news network on YouTube. So the fact that that outlet has gone, I think, is is really causing consternation at RT. Um, Its website, theoretically, is still available, but has been subject to a pretty devastating tranche of DDoS attacks you know as I talk to you now I'm kind of refreshing the RT website and it's coming up but for most of the morning it's been down so I think it's really significant what's going on and I'm very interested to see how Ofcom will rule on this because having monitored quite a lot of the coverage as I mentioned earlier it's it's not being great you know RT's become quite Adept over the years at almost skirting around the shape of Ofcom regulations in how it reports things, um, does so very well when it's not a, a moment of kind of critical Russian national interest. But in conflicts like these, it always gets it wrong at some point. And from what I've seen, it's been pretty badly um, misleading so far. And, and I expect that that's one of the things that Ofcom is going to come out and say throughout these next 12 investigations. We know that the outcome of the last big scale investigation that Ofcom did of RT was a massive fine, a £200,000 fine, which RT tried to fight, but which was upheld. And I think we can expect to see something as significant or most likely more significant than that. This brings the total number of open offcom investigations into RT up to 27, and the regulator has stated openly that it's considering whether RT should retain a UK licence, but in many ways it's become a moot point because we've already got RT off the air across Europe, off YouTube, and some other um, online providers as well, actually, and um, and now it's effectively dropped from broadcast providers in the US and UK. So in many ways, you can say that the tides of political and, and corporate and public opinion have all turned pretty comprehensively before we even get to resolving the regulation question.
1: Before we wrap up today, are there any sort of final thoughts that you have on anything we've discussed or anything we may have missed that's important to you?
2: I think with anything as emotive as this conflict... I think it's incumbent on all of us to be extremely careful how we manage our own relationships with information. And I know that even some disinformation researchers have been kind of sucked in by some of the footage circulating on social media that looks to be direct from the ground, but is actually either manipulated or repackaged footage of something else. And so I think it's really important right now to, and I know it's very hard, but to try and keep those emotions in check when we are reading the news Mm. and especially when we are sharing the news because it's so easy to share things that turn out not to be true and to feed into these much wider problems and much wider trends. At the moment, I think the Ukrainian side in the conflict is doing an absolutely excellent job of managing the communications element of the conflict. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, go for it.
2: So with this invasion taking place, the Ukrainian side has not only had to deal with an actual military intervention of its own sovereign territory, it's also had to come up with some kind of communication strategy to make sure that this is perceived globally as being as significant as it actually is to the Ukrainians. And I think they've done so extremely effectively so far. Now, part of this was because of the early intelligence that was provided by the US, for one, that an attack was imminent. And we've discussed already how Russian state media tried to play that down unsuccessfully overall. But that was incredibly important, I think, in beginning, essentially, the PR campaign, because if it hadn't been so clear in advance that this was ultimately going to happen, if it hadn't been publicised so well in advance that these were the Russian plans, then what we would have been more likely to see was the use of a provocation by Russia to essentially justify its invasion. Now, that, again, would have been a bit of a PR coup for the Russian side, would have made it seem much more reasonable what Russia was doing. And and by, by taking that possibility out of the equation, that's made it much more difficult for Russia to kind of spin its actions globally. And I think that's really significant. Then moving on from that, I think Zelensky's background as an actor i think has really helped he understands how to communicate not just with the general public but with different publics and he's been extremely effective in doing that so he's given his personal addresses through social media Um, he's done them in the ukrainian language and has really galvanized support amongst the ukrainian population but he's also made addresses directly to the russian people in russian and to the belarusian people as well yeah and some of this is getting through, you know, despite the fact that these media environments are really, really highly constrained, to some extent they are getting through. And you look even in Belarus, where they have certainly got their own problems. They have had a massive repression of um, political protest in the past couple of years. And yet still we saw protests in Belarus on behalf of Ukraine. And this is really significant stuff. I think the contrast between the communication on the Ukrainian side versus the Russian side, again, you cannot overstate how important that's been. Zelensky has very clearly portrayed himself as being, you know, a man of the people who is intimately involved with the defence of his country, whereas Putin couldn't seem more distant. Even when he was trying to kind of sell the the initial idea of recognising the separatist states, He had this televised meeting with the Security Council, which looked, I mean, you couldn't write a comedy scene, a kind of black comedy scene, better than how he essentially wrote himself into that. It kind of looked like a scene from, you know, the death of Stalin, basically, (laughs) that kind of equal parts. Cringe and disbelief, you know mm, mm. um and he he's kind of sat there as this head of the court with his courtiers paying court to him, all of them looking extremely nervous uh uncomfortable um and 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 the whole thing just smelt bad, basically, and we've seen this again and again, so you contrast the short video clips of Zelensky and his key security team on the ground in Kiev, with Putin at the end of a comedically long table away from his main security advisers, And it just couldn't look more different. And I think we hear so much all the time about Russia's masterful information operation. We look at this conflict when it's really important to the Russian side to be doing well in communicating this, and it's failing. It's failing so badly. That's Part of the reason we are seeing these massive leaps in censorship at home in Russia, because I think the Putin regime is is very, very clearly aware of just how badly it's bungling the communications around this. I mean, sure, the Russian people have very restricted access to alternatives. Many of them have been conditioned for so long that they kind of believe the line about neo-Nazis in Ukraine the reality of, of conscript soldiers actually being putting on the ground in a conflict situation is only just kind of dribbling through. And it's it's taking time, I think, to get through, but people are beginning to realise, and I think that really frightens the, the ruling regime very, very much indeed, and that's why we're seeing such an uptick in these um, restrictions of media at home.
1: Yeah, this may be a really dumb question. What is it, because the Russian media has been quite slick in the past, like certainly I think about the Scripple poisoning and how their coverage really sucked in a lot of people kind of on the fringes of the far right and far left and conspiracy theorists. Are they not doing so well now because there's so much real-time information that's just challenging them? Or are they just as surprised by what's going on as we were?
2: I think part of it is not being able to set that agenda in advance. So I think you can't underestimate the role played by that early intelligence that an attack was imminent Mm. because it really made it clear that there was some level of planning behind this. You know, this wasn't just a response to some sort of provocation. And that's how Russian information operations usually work is that they try and create questions and they don't necessarily provide answers to them, but they basically bombard with questions. Well, there's no question if you saw it coming. Mm. And the intelligence was pretty clear that this attack was going to happen. So that's the first thing that I think that kind of knocked the whole um, media strategy for Russia off kilter. I think two other things have been super important. The first is that um, President Zelensky just didn't roll over. You know, he could have fled straight away. And that was probably the the, the strategic calculation made in the Kremlin was that he wouldn't put up a, a fight, you know, he's a he's a millionaire, he's a celebrity. He's not going to be a problem. And the fact that he not only didn't roll over, but actually proved to be extremely adept at galvanising public opinion behind him, I think came as as a bit of a shock. And I think another part of this, if we go beyond the kind of perception thing, is that on a purely pragmatic level, I think the Russian side was woefully underprepared in general, now I, um, I mean this in quite a specific sense. I think a lot of people operationally didn't know this was going to happen until it happened. I think that was a very small circle who actually knew in advance. Now, if that's the case, it means that planning can't take place properly. And we look at the number of soldiers, for example, who had no idea they were going to be involved in ap- active operations. It kind of makes it clear that this wasn't strategized properly probably because there was an assumption that it would be quite an easy win. Yeah. Now, not only did they encounter resistance that was pretty unexpected, but also they haven't, until recently, been able to or wanted to use the full extent of Russian firepower because there's got to be some sort of appearance that there are humanitarian concerns at the centre of this. And, you know, levelling Kiev, for example, a city that most Russian people know very well, have visited probably numerous times, it's just kind of unthinkable. Now, desperate people do desperate things, and I think that's why we're seeing this massive upswing in the use of really destructive tactics now, because it wasn't really expected that this would prove to be a problematic operation. You know, it was supposed to be in, regime change, out, basically. You know, probably leave behind a friendly leadership in Kiev um, and essentially create a kind of, you know, another Belarus-style vassal state, I guess. Yeah. Um, The fact that this has proved much more tricky and that the international opposition to it has been quite so galvanised. I think that's come as a massive shock, you know, that this this was strategically very badly miscalculated. And so what we're seeing now is not like, you know, the Chess Grandmaster fulfilling his plan. It's an evolving situation where you're constantly having to respond to these measures you didn't anticipate coming through in the way that they did. And that's a challenge both for Russia's leadership in trying to prosecute this war, um, but also for Russia's beleaguered media operations, attempting somehow to find some way to spin it.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because I referred to it earlier, there was this sort of very raging debate just before the invasion where it was just flat-out denial and even ridicule of anybody who said that there was going to be an invasion. They were saying it was scaremongering. Even Edward Snowden got involved in that debate and was saying, um, you know, ridiculing people um, with regards to the potential invasion. And then the invasion happens. And there's only so many times you can kind of deny or or lie about things and then get caught out and people, you know, with a brain will hopefully look back at what people said in the past and think that that was not right. Those people were, you know, completely wrong.
2: It's amazing, though, isn't it? Because you look back at the number of times that the Kremlin has flat out lied about its intentions. And we're not talking about careful choices of words to obscure the truth. We're talking about flat out lies like... We can go back to Crimea, you know, Putin flat out said we don't have any troops in Crimea, you know, beyond what, what was supposed to be there. And it was a flat out lie. There's not going to be an invasion. And it was a flat out lie. And you get to the the stage where, you know, how can you maintain any sort of diplomatic relations in these kind of circumstances? It's just, it's insane, really. It's basically burning new diplomatic bridges now obviously we do have to find some sort of way to maintain some sort of communication because the alternative to that is pretty much unthinkable but it really does help explain I think why condemnation and opposition has been pretty impressive to my mind it's been coordinated it's been quite um to a significant extent and I think Part of that is is exactly what you've said. Part of the reason behind that is exactly what you've said, that you you can't conduct international relations in that manner without expecting that there will be a comeback from it.
1: Yeah, indeed. Well, look, thank you so much for joining me today. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work?
2: Um, If listeners are interested in the topics of... RT, for example, they can have a look at the book that I co-wrote with Ilya Yablokov called uh, Russia Today and Conspiracy Theory, People, Power and Politics on RT. Um, It's published with Routledge this year, uh, and it's available at all good bookstops.
1: Excellent. Thank you again for joining me today.
2: Thanks a lot.
0: Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.